let's go ahead and get started for today. We have assignments coming up. We have homework three on the planets, which is due Monday. So I need that in Monday. Um, I do have the article reviews grader, graded. You should see grades up for those. And I will work on your homeworks, and that's the next thing in line. I will get those, hopefully have those back for you at the beginning of the week. So I'll have article reviews to give you back later, uh, later during lab today. But next week, homework three. Second solar observations due on Wednesday. Quiz three next weekend. And then the second exam covering chapters three, four through eight, and nine will be on the 6th of October. So we should be good, on, good online for that. We'll be able to hopefully start on the sun today and then we'll finish up the sun next week and get, to get ready for the second exam which covers uh, the chapter on telescopes that we did last time, section on planets we've been doing, and the unit on the sun. So that's what we have coming up. Are there any questions? Just about everybody here. No, no, no. All right. Well, picture of the day for today, or pictures of the day, I guess I should say. There's a couple different pictures here. Uh, these are taken by a satellite. This is actually images of Mars. So this is the this is Mars that we're seeing. This is taken by a satellite. You don't get real high resolution images of Mars with this satellite, you might notice, which is interesting considering that you're almost at, you're at the planet you're in orbit. You should be able to get a lot more detail. But this satellite was not designed to really study the surface of Mars. We've got plenty of satellites, the Reconnaissance Orbiter, which orbits around Mars. We have the landers and the uh, rovers that are on the surface giving us much higher detail. What this is actually looking at is the atmosphere. It's trying to study the atmosphere of Mars. So what we're seeing here, set of four different images, this one is the reflected sunlight. So there is the surface of the planet itself. That's Mars in the, in the red color there. The first two images are looking at the atmosphere and they're looking at two different atoms in the atmosphere. They're looking at hydrogen here spread out in the blue over a very wide area. You can sort of see where the planet would be right in here. And oxygen in the green in a much smaller, more compact region. So how do we get hydrogen and oxygen in the atmosphere of Mars? Well, Mars does have water, at least water vapor in it and solid water, water ice. Those can get broken apart by ultraviolet radiation from the sun. If we break apart water, we get hydrogen and we get oxygen. So there is some, there are some oxygen atoms in the atmosphere. You can see how they're all real close to Mars. They're all kept real close. Oxygen atoms are quite heavy as compared to hi hydrogen. So Mars' gravity is better able to hold those heavy atoms closer to its surface. Hydrogen, on the other, other hand, is much lighter. Hydrogen has an atomic weight of 1. Oxygen is 16. So oxygen is 16 times heavier. So that hydrogen is much easier uh, to move faster and to get to sort of diffuse out into space. So what we're seeing here is what's happening to a lot of the water that was on Mars. It's happened over the last you know, billion years or so. That water on Mars has become vapor in the atmosphere, gets broken apart. The oxygen stays very close to the planet. Not so much in the atmosphere. It eventually gets tied up in the rocks. That's why Mars looks red. Because it has lots of iron materials in it. And if you get iron and oxygen, it rusts. So you get kind of rusty compounds on the, sur on the surface of Mars, giving it its very reddish, ruddy color. The hydrogen, on the other hand, spreads out like this. And then slowly, these outer ones 
move fast enough that they actually reach escape velocity. They escape from Mars altogether and drift out into space. So all of those atoms would slowly diffuse out into space and they would dis- disappear. So this is just one of the one of the spacecraft, you know, a number of spacecraft that we have exploring Mars right now. But this one was designed really to study something we hadn't looked at in great detail, which is the Martian atmosphere, and try to give us a better idea of what the atmosphere of Mars is actually like. The composite on the end kind of puts everything together. It's got the surface, it's got the oxygen real close, and it's got the hydrogen further out. We just had another spacecraft reach Mars. And in fact, it was the first one. It was uh, launched by India. So it was the first spacecraft from outside, like the European uh, Space Agency, the US, and the Soviet slash Russians to actually travel and orbit another planet. And there is another, so there's another spacecraft now that is just beginning to orbit and study Mars that was launched by India. And that just reached there as in the last few days. So. Ties in quite well with what we're looking at today, although we're going to be talking a little bit more about further out in the solar system today. But we get a, get a nice planetary picture to look at today. Any questions? Yes, ma'am. Last time I was in your class, the, the rover had just made it to Mars. Right. Has it reached that mountain yet? It's still traveling. It's a oh. slow process. It's a slow process. It takes years. Because you were here, what, a couple years ago you took the other? Year and a half. It's still traveling. It's been explored. It explores as it goes. It's not just. It's not on a straight beeline to that mountain. It's going around. You know. It's taking the scenic route, and exploring along. Exploring along the way. So yeah. It's still. It's still working on it. Anything else? Nope. 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 All right. Let's get back to finish up the planets here, and maybe even get onto the sun a little bit. Uh, let's see. We had just finished up the moon, so we were going to look at. Rings. So we're going to talk about rings briefly here. Um, Ring systems, every single one of the outer planets, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune, all have a ring system around them. Uh, Saturns are certainly the most beautiful, uh, the easiest to see. We've known about Saturn's rings since the 1600s. Uh, Galileo could almost see them. He could see that there was something there going on at Saturn, but he didn't have a big enough telescope to really be able to see the rings. Later in the 1600s, we were able to see them. And from that time on until the late 1970s, that was the only planet known to have rings. It was the only object that was known to have rings in the solar system. We've now added planets, three other planets that have rings, Jupiter, uh, Jupiter, Uranus, and Neptune. And actually an asteroid. There's actually an asteroid now that was recently discovered in the last year or so to have rings, to have a ring around it. It's the only small object that actually has a ring. What you see here is that the rings are very complex. It's not just a flat sheet of material orbiting around Saturn. It's actually got all sorts of brighter areas and darker areas, including uh, the major sections, the A ring, B, brighter one in here, and the inner C ring. But even those are subdivided into lots of little, lots of finer rings. Really, the rings are made up of lots of particles from you know, dust size to pebble size, pebbles, sand, up to things that are maybe you know, a meter across, you know, the size of a human, about. About that size particles. That's about how big the particles get in the ring. So there's no gigantic ones. There's no big moon-sized objects in there, but lots of little objects all orbiting around Saturn together. 
and we have certain divisions that occur such as the Cassini division named after the astronomer who discovered that and Encke's gap here which are regions not of no particles but where there's many fewer particles than there otherwise would be. So far fewer particles in some of these regions and a lot more here. So the B ring here has got lots and lots of particles reflecting lots of light back to us. Looks nice and bright. The Cassini division has many fewer particles. And what happens with that is because some of those large moons that we talked about last time, when they orbit around, these ring particles are very close to Saturn. They orbit around very fast. You have some of the moons that orbit around slower. But if, for example, this ring particle takes three days to orbit Saturn, just to throw out a number. Say there's something in this gap takes three days to make a complete loop around Saturn and come back to where it was. If you have a moon that takes six days, every other time that moon comes back here, they're exactly lined up again and it pulls a little bit extra on that particle. So eventually, not in a week, not in a month, but over thousands and millions of years, that little tiny tug each time adds up and what it does is the moon kind of clears out this area. So there's not a, they're not stable orbits here. They get pulled a little bit further out. They get pushed a little bit further in into something that is stable. But you can get a number of these and a lot of the a lot of the features that we see in here are related to all the moons that are of Saturn that are orbiting. Remember Saturn had a couple dozen, many dozen moon, moons orbiting it. Each one of those has its own gravitational effects and helps to shape the rings. So we see a lot of detail, a lot of detail, a lot of detail there. There are actually more than just the A, B, and C ring. There's a D and an E and an F. They go further out. There are more uh, small rings. Those are the main ones which were the first ones that were discovered is what I'm showing you here. But each of these, each of the Jovian planets does have a ring system, so not just Saturn, but Jupiter was the third of the ring systems to be discovered. Uh, Saturn was first. Jupiter, when we uh, flew by with the Voyager spacecraft and were actually able to pick out a very small ring, nothing, nothing near like Saturn's. So you can tell in the image here this was taken out close to Jupiter. It still doesn't look near as beautiful, but there is actually a ring around Jupiter just as there is around Saturn. Now, did Jupiter maybe have a nicer big ring system many millions or tens of millions or a billion years ago? It might have. Maybe Saturn had something go on on it that gave it a ring system that is lasting now. But if we could come back in many millions of years, it might fade out. So the rings are not a permanent fixture necessarily too. I mean, they're going to be there, but they're not as they are right now isn't how they're always necessarily going to be. Uranus has some very complicated rings and some very thin rings. This was the second set of rings that were discovered and discovered quite by accident. The first uh, five of them, uh, except for this real faint one here, one, two, three, four, five. Ignore this real faint one. That wasn't part of the first discovery. Neither were these three little ones in here. But these were discovered quite by accident. So our second set of rings, we weren't looking for them. We'd known about Saturn's rings for the longest time. In 1977, nothing else had rings, so there was no reason to look for them. But in, also in that year, Uranus was going to do something else. It was actually going to pass in front of a star. So it was going to pass directly in front of a star. So if we looked at Uranus here, it was going to move and it was going to pass right in front of that star and block out its light. Big deal, right? It's going to pass in front of the star. Well, that is one way. Don't forget, this is 1977. We have not come close to exploring these planets yet. All we can look at them is from Earth. When Uranus passes in front of that star, 
the way the star dims its light tells us about the atmosphere. So this was a great chance for astronomers to study the atmosphere. How does that light disappear? How thick is the atmosphere? How big is the atmosphere? We could learn a lot about the atmosphere by watching the light from that star disappear behind Uranus and then again when it came back out when it came the other way. Otherwise, you know, you know big deal it's going to pass in front, of, in, front of the star, in front of the star. But what happened is when they turned on their instruments to measure the star brightness and watch how it faded behind Uranus, they turned it on early and they found that there were, if you watched how bright the light was, you were just measuring the intensity of the light and it was nice and steady and then it dipped and dipped again and again before you even got to the point where it would pass in front of Uranus and eventually be blocked out. So they were looking for this dip here but they found these five other ones that occurred. So why was it, why was the light dimming there? And what they did was they looked here, they left their instruments on on the way out after it passed, after the star came out of Saturn, uh, came out, out of keep doing Saturn, out of Uranus, after it came out and they saw the exact same pattern except in reverse. And that led them to conclude that there was actually a set of rings, a set of five rings around Saturn that were discovered then in the late 1970s. And that was this bigger, thick uh, epsilon ring and then alpha, beta, gamma, and delta after the first five letters of the Greek alphabet that were discovered quite by accident. If they hadn't turned their instrumentation on to a little bit later, they turned it on in here, they would have missed that. And they would have had no reason to hold it on afterward. They would have said, okay, our experiment's done, we turn it off. So discovered quite by accident. Now, we would have seen them eventually when Voyager got there, but that wasn't for another nine years. So we actually had, not then, when Voyager got there, guess what? Now we knew not, instead of just discovering them, we knew to look for them and to study them. And Voyager could actually be programmed to look at those and study them better. They are very complex. This is the one ring, this is this epsilon ring, the outermost big one, actually blown up into great detail. And you can see that like Saturn's rings, there's a lot of little mini rings within it. So there's a lot of features within these rings. They're not just, again, a nice smooth sheet of particles. They're all little individual rings and ringlets there. Uranus's and the other planets are actually confined by small moons. There are actually little moons that will orbit around very close to these rings and keep all the particles confined. We call them shepherding moons, right? Just as a you know, shepherd, a sheepdog is to keep the sheep all together, well the shepherding moon keeps all the ring particles together. So all those ring particles are then kept together by a moon orbiting just outside and just inside and it keeps everything nicely confined together. We see that not only on Uranus, although it's really prominent here because it keeps those rings so tiny and keeps them from spreading out into, into space. The last planet, Neptune, has a set of rings. There's a couple rings here that were discovered. Now Neptune's rings were not discovered until 1989. Oh, I'm sorry, sorry, go ahead. How many moons does Uranus actually have? Uranus has five good-sized moons and a lot of little ones. So another couple, another 20 or 30 moons. It's got a good number. So there's a lot, a lot of moons around all, around all of these. Uranus has only been visited once, so we don't have something that's been there to really study it in great, great detail. Neptune has a set of rings as well. These ones we actually looked for because by the time Voyager got to Neptune in 1989, we knew that Jupiter had a ring, we knew that Saturn had a ring, we, we'd known that, we knew that Uranus had rings, so it's like, okay, well maybe Neptune has rings too. 
So we actually went looking for them. And the big bar here is blocking out most of the light from the planet itself, because otherwise that would overwhelm the entire image. And then you can see that, yes, the faint rings were visible. So we're actually able to detect rings around all four of the Jovian planets now. And as I said, recently, in the last year, we've also discovered a ring around one of the asteroids, that an asteroid actually has ring particles orbiting it. So yeah? Is it possible for a terrestrial planet to have rings if it's big enough? It would be possible. I mean, if the, if the conditions were right, you could have a ring around a terrestrial planet, which just has not occurred here. It seems to be more likely with the outer planets, perhaps their larger mass allows them to uh, break up materials that would then form the rings. And their larger moon systems, they make it, ring particles may get fed from asteroids hitting the moon, moons. That would throw particles out into space and some of those could be gathered and keep feeding these rings and keep them going for a longer period of time. So a terrestrial planet technically could, there's no reason, I mean, especially if an asteroid can, but there might be other conditions that apply to it as well. Yes, sir? How much larger is Neptune than Earth? Though? How much Neptune larger? About four or five times the diameter. Sure. And I'm trying to remember. It's like uh, I'd have to guess on the mass. I don't know it off the top of my head. But larger than that. It's about that's, we could fit about four or five Earths across it, and it would be many times more that in terms of size, in terms of how massive it is. Yeah, they're they're quite they're quite they're all quite big compared. All of those are quite bigger than the Earth, and they're still small compared to Jupiter. Jupiter mass-wise, I do know that's about 320 Earths. So these would probably be a couple dozen Earths. But I'm, I'm just doing that approximation off the top of my head. Anything else? All right. Beyond Neptune. What's beyond Neptune? Well, lots of stuff now. Uh, one object here is Pluto that was discovered in 1930 and was the ninth planet from its discovery in 1930 until about, what is it now, like eight, eight years ago? About eight years ago when we finally changed how we defined, finally actually defined what a, planet, what a planet is. It was discovered much as Neptune was. If you remember I told you when we discovered Uranus that it didn't orbit quite right. It was a little bit off at times. And they made predictions, well, Newton's laws must be correct. So that means maybe there's a planet there tugging on it. Um, and we did the calculations were done and we were able to find, predict where Neptune would be and we found it relatively close to where it was supposed to be. Well, when we found Neptune, it wasn't behaving the same way it, we thought it should. You know, you knew about the gravitational interaction between it and all the other inner planets to it. Jupiter, yeah, Jupiter is going to, we can calculate all that. Of course, you think back then, that's all calculation done by hand. You know, no plugging it into the computer and saying, Where's, where is it going to be? All done by hand. But it wasn't matching up. So, well, prediction, well, it worked great once. Let's do it again. Let's predict that there's going to be another planet out beyond Neptune. And Pluto was then done with an exhaustive search of looking for that. It wasn't near as easy as finding the other one. Uh, and it turns out that, first of all, Neptune didn't have the irregularities in the orbit. There were some things in the mass that we just didn't have accurately enough at the time. We didn't really learn until the spacecraft got there. Uh, that we just didn't quite understand. So there really weren't any irregularities. But even if there had been, Pluto is so little mass that it would not have been able to gravitationally affect Neptune in any significant way. Pluto is actually smaller than our own moon. So it's tiny by, com it's tiny by comparison to any of the other planets that we've, that we've talked about. But in terms of the definition, what we actually did back 
said, I think it was about seven, eight, nine years ago now, is that astronomers actually defined what a planet is. Until that time, there was no definition of a planet. A planet was a planet. You know, it's, we know what everybody knows what a planet is. You don't need a, a formal definition. But it was getting to the point where there were lots of objects. We were discovering objects out there that were actually Pluto-sized. A couple were even bigger than Pluto. So are these all new planets? Do we now have 10, 11, 12 planets? Or is there something else? Do we have to actually come up with some formal definition? And what they did was they came up with a three-part definition that said a planet had to do three things in order to be classified as a planet. First one is it had to orbit the sun. Okay, that's pretty basic. It's got to orbit around the sun. If it doesn't orbit around the sun, it's not a planet. Um, Ganymede might be larger than Mercury, but it orbits around Jupiter, not around the sun, so it's not a planet. Any of the other objects, our, our, our moon orbits around the Earth. Even though it's larger than, uh, pretty large, it's not counted as a planet because it doesn't orbit around the sun. So, pretty basic one. I think they would have all, everyone would have accepted that one before, even before. Number two, because there's lots of things that orbit the sun, right? All the planets orbit the sun. All the asteroids orbit the sun. The comets. There's all sorts of little dust particles. Are we going to end up now with 50 billion planets? Because every little thing that orbits the sun is now a, would it be a planet? So we had to do something on terms of size. And that said it had to be, I'm just going to say it had to be gravitationally strong enough to pull itself into a spherical shape. If you put enough mass together, right, you can make a rock that's just any sort of irregular shape. If you start putting more and more material together, the gravitational force gets strong enough, it's going to pull itself down to the most compact shape it can. And that's always going to be a sphere. So if you put enough material together, an object is going to form a sphere. So, like Pluto there, imaged, one of our nice images of Pluto, it is big enough to pull itself into a spherical shape. So is our moon. So are lots of the large moons that we talked about last time. Uh, small things like comets are not. So this gets rid of a lot of comets and asteroids that are just not enough material there to be able to pull themselves into a spherical shape. Still leaves us with many hundreds and thousands of objects that could be classified as planets. So the third one was that it had to be gravitationally dominant. It had to dominate its area gravitationally. It had to be able to clear out all of the other little objects around it. So if we look around the inner solar system, there's not a lot of stuff there. There are, there are asteroids coming through here and there, but pretty much it's empty from the Sun, through Mercury, through Venus, through Earth, through Mars. There's not a lot of particles there. All those planets have, over time, either collected them, they've either crashed into those planets and helped build up their mass, or they've passed close to that planet and gotten flung out of the solar system altogether. So they've used their gravity either to collect those particles, crash, they hit as a meteorite, they become a part of the planet. And that's what, that's what you know, Mercury, Venus, Earth, and Mars have done. There are no objects out there like that. There are not a lot of them. It's cleared, pretty much those orbits are cleared. The outer planets, much more gravity, have done the same thing. Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune. In between, in between Mars and Jupiter, there's a whole bunch of asteroids. The largest asteroid series was originally classified as a planet. Actually, back in the eight, early 1800s, discovered in 1801, it was classified as a new planet discovered. 
until we started finding lots of other asteroids around it. And then it got demoted from planet to asteroid. And now it's gotten re-promoted back up to dwarf planet. So Ceres was one that was a similar situation to what Pluto had a couple hundred years ago. It was discovered. It was the first new planet discovered. It was all exciting. It was right between Mars and Jupiter where people had predicted that it might, there might be a planet because there was a big gap there. And they found it. But then we started finding lots of other asteroids. There are thousands upon thousands known now. Ceres is still the largest of them. But there are lots of other ones that are now, now known. The same thing happened with Pluto. When Pluto was discovered, it was the only object out there. And now that it's been, now that we've got better technology, we've also discovered a lot more. In fact, I think I have a, do I have a listing of some of them? Nope. Got to do the moon first. Let me jump ahead. I'll come back to this one. Let me, uh, there's Eris. Let me go to Eris first while I'm talking about this, and I'll come back to that other slide here in just a minute. We actually discovered the first ones back in the 1990s. We now know hundreds of them. Actually, I think it's over 1,000 now that we know that are out there with Pluto. So Pluto has not, does not have the mass to be gravitationally dominant in its area. Okay, so not, not gravitationally dominant in its, in its area. So Pluto has lots of other objects like it. Lots of other objects out there that are actually like it. This is one that was discovered. This is Eris. Another object out there much like Pluto. So is it the 10th planet? Or are we discovering a whole new class of objects? that Pluto just, we happened to discover because we were searching for. We were desperately looking for a planet, so we searched in great detail. Otherwise, Pluto likely would not have been discovered for decades later. It was not that bright that we would have, it would have stood out. It was a very difficult thing to find. So Eris does actually have its own moon here, uh, dysnomia. And Eris is a little bit larger than Pluto. So it's actually a little bit larger than Pluto. Orbits further away. Uh, can get a little bit further, uh, never gets as close as Pluto, but can get much further away. It's got kind of an elliptical orbit, so it can actually get much further away. But it's not just those two. We've now discovered lots and lots of these objects out there. So as we learned about the asteroid belt between Mars and Jupiter back in the early 1800s, now in the late 1900s, early 2000s, we're learning about the Kuiper belt out there beyond the orbit of Neptune. And Pluto is just one of the very largest objects in that belt. So in terms of defining a planet, what it doesn't do is this. It's not gravitationally dominant. It does not clear its area. But it does do this too. So we developed a new classification, which was a dwarf planet. A dwarf planet was able to, it does orbit the sun. So it still eliminates all the moons of the planets. And it's able to pull itself into a spherical shape, as Pluto does. So. Pluto is, is still a planet. It's just one of the dwarf planets. We have nine major planets, or eight major planets. And then we have now a half dozen or so dwarf planets that have been discovered, including Pluto, Ceres, and a number of other objects out in the outer part of the solar system. Now, Pluto does have a moon as well. Let me go back to that previous slide that I skipped here. Pluto actually has several moons. It has one that was discovered back in the late 70s, Charon. Uh, that was discovered there. You can see this is one of the very early images of it. This is a great image of Pluto here from Earth. 
That's about what Pluto looks like. That's how tiny it is. That's how far away it is from us. We can see that it's there. We can measure its motions and measure its orbit. But we don't get to see any details on it. But you can see that it's got kind of this little bulge on one side. If you watch that bulge over time, you could see that it would disappear. It would be behind. You could actually track its orbit around, much as Galileo tracked the orbit of the large satellites of Jupiter. So we could actually figure, figure out where it was. There were two other moons that were discovered. Uh, about 10, almost 10 years ago now. And in fact, I think Pluto is up to actually five moons now. So lots and lots of objects out there. We're finding more and more moons the further out we get in the solar system. There are lots. Even these very small objects, smaller than our own moon, have lots of little moons of their, of their own. But there are actually two more that were discovered and only recently named. I don't have their information with me at the moment, though. Yeah. Well, a moon is just as long as there's something that is orbiting around it. It doesn't require any specific amount of gravity. Uh, we have, we looked at the picture of the comet a couple, was that last week? Try to remember now, it all blurs together. Uh, that we're actually orbiting around a comet now. We can actually put a spacecraft in orbit around a comet, which is much tinier than this. So you don't, you don't require a certain amount of mass to have a moon. It just depends on the amount of material that was out there to actually form the moon and how the moon's formed. One of the reasons, you know, we still have to wonder why do Mercury and Venus have no moons? Is it something with just where they're forming close to the sun? Was there something else early on in their formation that, you know, precluded moons forming? But further out, there's lots more particles. Could these have all formed together as a group? Could they have gotten close enough to Pluto to have been captured? You know, if Pluto could have captured enough of these to itself, could it have built up enough mass to actually have become a full-fledged planet? Certainly a possibility, but that never happened. You know, if you get enough of those objects colliding together to build a planet, but that never, never occurred. So we're up to five, five moons on, on Pluto right now. All right, there's a little bit better image of Pluto. Oops, wait a second, that's a little bit better. That's even a better image of Pluto that we get here on Earth. We will be visiting Pluto next year. There is a spacecraft on the way to Pluto right now that's due to arrive in July of 2015. It is not going to orbit around Pluto. It is moving way too fast to be able to possibly slow it down. So it's going to fly by Pluto and for a day or two we're going to get some very nice, our only real good images of Pluto to really be able to study the surface of the planet. This is what we see from like Hubble Space Telescope now. There's some darker areas, there's some lighter areas, but what's really going, we have no clue. We have not been able to get any close-up images of Pluto, but the New Horizons spacecraft will be there uh, middle of next year. So we'll get a chance to really see some more detail there. So I'll come back to that image. I've gone back a couple. Let me go back up to where we were. This is the last uh, slide to finish up this section. And then we can start talking about the sun a little bit. These are just some of these other objects, just to give you a size comparison. Here's us. Not, we're not the largest planet by far. We're not even putting in you know, Jupiter and the other planets there. There's the moon. For comparison, Pluto and Eris together you know, might make up one moon in terms of size. So Pluto there we know. Eris, a little further away. These are some of the other large objects. Haumea, Makemake that have been discovered that are actually part of this uh, Kuiper belt of objects, sometimes called Plutoids. So Pluto, while not a planet, actually has now its own class, whole class of objects named after it. It's, uh, which the other planets, you know, other than the Earth and Jupiter, right? We have the Jovian planets after Jupiter and the terrestrial planets after Earth. Pluto actually has its, its own class, what we call the Plutoids, which are all of these objects. 
And these are just a few of them that orbit around at that distance. And that's out in the Kuiper Belt. That's out be all beyond the orbit of Neptune. So much as we have uh, the asteroid belt between Mars and Jupiter, we've got a whole belt of objects out there right beyond Neptune. Is there another large planet out there? It's possible, but it's getting harder and harder to see with our more and more accurate measurements how you could miss it. You know, we were able to measure the positions of the planets very accurately. If there was a large Jupiter-sized object out there, I think we'd know about it. I think we'd be able to see that it's deviating the planets because we can measure them now extremely accurately, which we couldn't do you know, 100 years ago when we were work- looking for Pluto. So, so what about the, yeah. the one that's going out there now that's going to take the flyby? Mm-hmm. It's going to fly by and then it's going to be exploring through the Kuiper Belt. It'll be going through the Kuiper Belt. It'll take it, you know, it's going to fly by Pluto so fast, but the space is so large, so tremendously large that it will take it, you know, it can explore out in the Kuiper Belt forever. So will it be able to fly by? It might be able to detect new Kuiper, you know, whatever area it happens to fly by. And that means, where's my marker here? You know, we're out here. Here's the sun. Here's Neptune. Yeah, not quite to scale. There's Neptune and Pluto and all that stuff is way out here. Whichever way it happens to fly out, you know, we'll learn about that section. What's going on in the rest of it? But again, if there was a Jupiter-sized object or something that large out there, we'd see its gravitational effects. So we'd know about it by now. I really think we would. How far can it get before we stop getting photos and information back? Uh, It can actually get as far as it wants. We'll get information from it as long as its power supply lasts. The Voyager spacecraft are still going. They still have minimal amounts of power. They have little radioactive uh, decay that is used. They have some radioactive isotope in there. Its decay supplies them with energy. Till that runs out, which is estimated to be probably about another decade or so, they can still send us back some information. They've actually finally left the solar system in terms of they've reached the edge of the sun's influence in space and gotten into the space between the stars. Nowhere near another star yet, but they've actually crossed that boundary from measurements that have come back now within the last couple of years. Yes, sir? What did you say power is it's a, it's, the, it's a little nuclear isotope decay. It's not like a nuclear reactor. There's no nuclear fission going on like we use you know, at the power plants here on Earth. But you have a nuclear isotope that's unstable and it decays. So it changes. You know, One element converts to another. It gives off a little bit of energy every time that occurs. And that is the energy that's used to power spacecraft that are going out that direction. In this, because you know, if you're going into... Saturn, if you're going into Mercury, nice solar cells give you lots of energy. If you're going out to Pluto or beyond, you don't get much solar energy. I mean, the sun is just like a really, really, it's real bright, but it's like a tiny little bright speck in the sky. Much brighter than any of the stars we see here from Earth, but still not near enough that you'd need solar panels that were tremendous in size to be able to try to collect any kind of energy from it. So they actually use a nuclear power. When you're going out that far, you need some kind of nuclear power to really be able to power the, power the craft. Yep. Yes, sir? Yeah. Do we ever have a chance of getting outside of our galaxy? Not in any reasonable time frame. Not unless we come up with some kind of uh, warp drive, hyperspace, you know, whatever, whatever science fiction show you like to, to go through. Mainly because our, our galaxy is so big. Our galaxy is about, uh, you'll see varying numbers, but just say 100,000 light years across. That means if you could travel at the speed of light, it would take you 100,000 years to get across it. 
If you could travel at 100 times the speed of light, it's still going to take you 1,000 years. So unless you can come up with some way of, you know, some hyperspace that takes you from one to the other in, you know, very quickly, it's really not possible to get in a reasonable time frame. Could we do it? Yeah. These crafts will eventually, if they're heading out that direction, they'll eventually get there. Thousands, millions of years from now. But nothing in a reasonable amount of time. And unless Einstein is shown wrong that, you know, speed of light is the limiting speed, then we're stuck. The fastest you could possibly go is the speed of light. And you'd never be able to get there in, you know, in a lifetime. Yeah? So yeah, it's one of those satellites or whatever run out of power, they'll just keep going. They'll, <coughs> they'll just keep going. Yep, they're still traveling through space, so Voyager will keep traveling. They will not, will not be able to communicate with it anymore. But it'll keep traveling out through space and, you know, eventually run into something out there, you know, eventually fly by something or be discovered by some, you know, civilization. They were sent with, we talk about usually in the last, last class, you know, they're sent with little, they have little records and things that have, you know, images and stuff from Earth and sounds from Earth to, to go out there. That's weird because I was watching Independence Day today. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Any other questions? <coughs> All right, well, what I'm going to start on is we're going to get started on the sun. And this is the last unit for the chapter, at least I can get the introduction done here our last unit for the exam. So, we've talked about all the last lesson was all the little stuff in the solar system, all the little specks that make up almost nothing of the solar system. This time we talk about really what's all the all of the solar system and that's the sun. The sun has, you know, 90 99% of all the mass in the solar system is in the sun. The little bits that are left over make up all the planets that we talked about. All the dwarf planets, all the asteroids, all the meteors, all the comets, that's all the other little specks. The vast majority of the material is here in the sun. So what we're going to look at, there's an image of the sun um, that we look at. This would be taken in, uh, this looks like this is taken in the hydrogen light, that red light of hydrogen. So instead of imaging the sun just in visible light, which is how we normally look at it, we look at it here just in the hydrogen light and we see there's some areas that are actually a little bit brighter. We'd actually see these when we look at the sun as dark areas, as sunspots, but they also emit a lot of uh, certain types of radiation that we see here and in this image they're brighter. So these are some darker, more active areas on the sun that would be on the sun. And the rest of the sun has kind of this grainy appearance which has to do with how material is moving inside it. So it's not just this big smooth ball of uh, fire, it's actually just a really hot, really, really hot plasma that at the surface is about 6,000 degrees. So a little bit warmer there. So never going to go land on the sun. We don't have much that's going to be able to stand up to 6,000 degrees to be able to land on it, to be able to go get a sample of this material and find out what it is. We do get some of that material coming to Earth indirectly. You see like here, there are little prominences. We'll talk about some of this. There's material that's coming off the surface of the sun. Some of that, there are some prominences that are so eruptive, called, called flares, that actually fling material from the sun out into space. Comes here to Earth, if it happens to be in our direction, and we see the aurora. So that's actually caused by particles from the sun that are striking the Earth's atmosphere. So we do get some particles here, but we can't just go, you know, scoop up a piece and study the sun. We have to study it by observation, looking at the light that's coming from it, and by theoretical models. Making models that explain the physics as to how we go about understanding, you know, what's going on in the sun. 
So we're going to look at the sun. We'll look at the first section or so here today uh, before we get to lab. Uh, that's the sun, just in general, overall properties of the sun. Then we'll break the sun down and look at the interior. What is the sun like inside? We can't see it directly, but we can make some inferences based, based, on, based on what we do see and the physics that we understand. So I'll give you some summaries of that. And then we'll look at the atmosphere. That's the part we actually can see. When we look at the sun, we see part of the surface, but there's actually parts of the sun that go well beyond that. Right, we see during an eclipse, we can actually see the corona of the sun, which is the outer atmosphere of the sun. It's there right now. You can't see it because the rest of the sun is so bright it washes out everything else. But you could go see, you could, if you have an eclipse or certain instruments that can block out the sun to observe, you could actually study the atmosphere of the sun. That's the part we can actually see. We'll look at solar activity. And then we started with the interior here, kind of giving you, a, I'll give you a general idea of it. We'll come back down to the very interior to finish up the chapter and look at how the sun produces its energy. So we'll look at how it goes about actually creating all the energy that really keeps us, keeps us going. Right? Didn't have a sun here, get awful cold, get awful dark all of a sudden. So if the sun were to go out, which it won't, we've got about 5 billion years left of it. So well beyond all of our projected lifespans. So. Uh, but how does that sun actually produce that energy? And how can we produce that much energy for 5 billion years that it's already done and still be going for another 5 billion? So that's what we're going to be looking at over this and then into the beginning of next week. Here's some general properties. I'm not asking you to memorize any of the numbers. Uh, I'm just giving them, giving them here for you to give a comparison. Some of them you'll hear me mention over and over again. So it doesn't hurt to, you know, as a comparison that the sun is about 6,000 degrees, really a little bit less than 6,000 degrees in terms of surface temperature. If you go down inside the sun, it gets a lot hotter than that. Surface is about 6,000 degrees. It gets down to about 15 million at the core. So think six, now, now, now it makes a you know, nice winter day at the surface compared. Yes, ma'am? So you say it's about 6,000 degrees. Yes, Kelvin. yes. Just to get somewhat of an idea, what would that be in degrees? In degrees Fahrenheit? That would be another couple thousand, pushing about eight, 9,000 if you do Fahrenheit. It'd be even hotter, yeah. Well, you don't have to worry about, what is it, nine-fifths? Yeah, so nine, so almost, almost doubled that. So again, it's, it's, it's big enough that you can't even, I mean, it's not, it's not a number you can really comprehend. Surface of Venus, I think you maybe can get there, because I use that co comparison with the oven. Turn your oven up high to like 450 degrees, which is pretty high for turning an oven up. And then imagine it doubled that. Well, double that you can imagine. Can you imagine going up 10 times? I can't. So I can't even begin to imagine that kind of heat. Uh, so that luminosity, don't worry about the number. Uh, luminosity of the sun for most astronomers is one. It's one solar luminosity. We'll use that when we compare other stars. We'll say a star is twice as luminous as the sun or half as luminous. It gives us a better comparison. Does this number mean anything to you? No. That big of a number doesn't mean a lot to me. I mean, I, can, I can't understand 10 to the 26th anything. You know, nothing I've ever counted has gone up to 10 to the 26th. So. Uh, but one, so luminosity of the sun, same with the mass of the sun. The mass of the sun is one. It's one solar mass. And we compare other stars to it. You might say a star is 10 times the mass of the sun, or five times, or half, or a tenth. You can use that as a comparison. Those numbers make a lot more sense than saying 10 to the 30th kilograms. And radius as well, you know, we usually double that into a diameter, one solar diameter. So again, you don't need to memorize any of those, 
any of those numbers. That one doesn't hurt to know. Sometimes it doesn't hurt to know that the sun takes about a month to rotate. And certainly to know that it rotates differently depending on where you are. The sun does not rotate like a solid. Earth rotates. doesn't matter where you are on the earth. It takes 24 hours to rotate once, right? If you're on the sun and you're at the equator, it takes about 25 days to make. So you're in your really heavy-duty asbestos suit on the sun, or heavy-duty asbestos spacecraft that can hold up to 7,000 degrees temperature. And you go around the sun, it takes 25 days. But if you go up to the pole, it takes 36. So it doesn't rotate. It's not a solid body. It's actually gas. And it will rotate faster here at the equator than it does at the poles. So it's not a solid like a ball or like the Earth. It actually is a big ball of gases, so it can rotate at different at different speeds. And it varies from about 25 to about 36 days. And that actually gives the sun a lot of its activity. That causes a lot of the sunspots because that way that way that rotates. So there's a couple numbers there. Only one I didn't mention was density. Uh, density 1400 kilograms per cubic meter. That's about one, that's 1.4 grams per cubic centimeter. That's about the density of water. So overall the density of the sun is about as de- a little bit denser than water. That means there's a lot of the area out here on the sun that is, a, that is very low density. That's just a gas. There's a lot of material when you get deep down in the sun that is a lot denser. That is much denser than things we have here on Earth. It would be you know, 100 times denser than water. So there's a big variation. That's just the average density if you average it out over these very gaseous layers and these very dense layers deep down inside. So again, the numbers you don't need to know, we're going to use them for, we use for comparison. We'll talk about you know, one solar diameter. We'll compare stars that way. One solar mass, uh, one solar luminosity. Temperature is the only one we typically don't say you know, two solar temperatures. We usually give actual numbers for. Here's a general overview. We're going to look at the sun here. Uh, not to scale at all, but this is the core. Deep down in the sun, that's where nuclear fusion is going on. That's where hydrogen atoms are being smashed together to create helium atoms. So we take four hydrogen atoms, smash them together in a certain pattern that we'll talk about at the end of this chapter, and we can form one helium atom. And thanks to Einstein, we know that that little bit of mass that is lost, if you add up four hydrogen atoms and weigh them, they weigh a little bit more than one helium atom. Not a lot teeny tiny fraction of a percent, but that little bit of mass gets converted to energy. And E equals mc squared, right? the equation everybody's heard of from Einstein, says that little tiny mass becomes a lot of energy. So when you have billions upon billions and billions of reactions going on every single second here in the core, that little, those little bits of mass are turned into a lot of energy that eventually works its way out. Now it works its way out through a number of different areas. There's the core here at the center. That's the only place where energy is being produced. The rest of the sun is just transporting that energy. So all the actual energy that's going on and being produced is deep down in that core. It can transfer out by radiation. Radiation is you know, light coming to us from the sun. The sun transports its energy, comes through by radiation. We can feel it coming through. The particles come straight through. That's what's happening in the radiation zone, except that it's so dense that the particles don't come straight out. They don't go from here and just zip straight out to this next zone. They actually move a tiny bit. They get absorbed and they kind of zigzag. And it might take them thousands of years, hundreds of tens of thousands of years, to actually slowly work their way out through this zone because it is so dense when you get down here. So that particle, that light that moves, 
is absorbed right away and gets emitted back out in some direction and is absorbed again and it constantly does that. It has a general motion to outward but it might take it a long long time to actually get there. Then at the last section out here we get convection. Convection is uh, we're used to that on, used to that on Earth. We have convection heating. You have heat that's down at the bottom and it rises up to the top and then the cooler air gets pushed down and heated up and you just get a big cycle of cells that come up and down. So you heat up. What this radiation does is it heats up the material at the bottom of the convection zone. It gets heated. It causes it to rise. So it rises to the surface. Releases that energy. Cools off. Comes back down. Picks up more. And it's just a constant cycle <coughs> of moving material back and forth. This is actually here. We're just moving the radiation. The actual particles don't really move. Here we're actually moving the atoms. The part of the sun is actually moving around here. The little parts of the sun are rising and then sinking again. Now way out of scale, to be paper thin to this scale, are these very outer layers. And you can see 200,000, 300,000, 200,000. Those are pretty good in terms of size. The photosphere, that's what we see when we look at the sun, is only 500 kilometers thick. It's a very outermost layer. And that's what you see when you go and glance at the sun. You watch a sunrise or a sunset. You're seeing the photosphere of the sun. Beyond that you get the chromosphere. Again, we're going to go into these in more detail. A transition zone up here and then the corona that we can see out during a solar eclipse. So a number of different areas that we can see there. And did I have one? Yeah. Let me just look at this. I think this is the last one I wanted to do. Yes it is because we'll do that next time. So just finish up the first section of chapter 9 here. Uh, The luminosity. Again, that's the number. Just to give you an idea of how much energy the sun is producing every single second, 4 times 10 to the 26 watts. Meaningless, right? The number does not mean anything. I don't even think the comparison really means anything because I don't think most of us can imagine one, one megaton nuclear bomb going off instead of 10 billion every second. That's how much energy the sun is producing. Not how much we're getting here at Earth, but how much is being sent off into space every single second. So 10, mil, 10 billion nuclear bombs every single second. I mean, energy production beyond anything we can begin to imagine here on Earth. You know, I say one I can't even imagine. So, but that's what the luminosity is, and the luminosity is just the total amount of energy. We can sort of figure that out because we're we're right here, and we collect this little tiny bit of energy that happens to be striking the Earth, and we can then figure out well the Earth only intersects a little tiny portion of the Earth, of the distance of the you know, radiation coming from the sun, most of it just travels out into space. Most of it goes out there into space to be seen as a st- distant star for you know, someone around another, an- in another solar system. So I'm going to go ahead and stop there. I'll leave that up if anybody wants to get information. And then we'll pick up on 9-2 on Monday. And then I have a lab. I'm going to try booting up these computers. I'm told they're all working now, that they fixed them all yesterday. So we should be good. Keep our fingers crossed. I have two labs ready just in case. So if you need to take a break and we'll be back here about 10 minutes and get started.